electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Kelly Evans, host of CNBC's The Exchange. My conversation today is with Stan Major. Stan is portfolio manager of the Hotchkiss and Wiley Midcap Value Fund, which is up 38% this year. While Stan can invest in any number of stocks, he's a specialist in energy names. The last time he joined me on air, we talked about how he'd like to see a lot more consolidation in the energy space. But today, I'd like to start by talking about the price of oil and the administration's hopes to lower it. Just yesterday, we spoke with an industry analyst who says the only way to lower oil prices is basically to beg Saudi Arabia to pump more oil. I'd like to know if Stan agrees with this and where he sees value in the energy space right now. Stan, thanks for joining me. Oh, it's great to be here, Kelly. So Um, go ahead. Let me start by asking if you actually want lower oil prices as an energy investor. No, I mean, I mean, look, the, the higher prices are, the more profitable the companies are. The issue is in the long run, um, you know, there are some possible short term fixes to bring prices down, but there's a long term structural issue uh, with the business and and why oil prices are higher than they were. So if if you step back and think about any business, um, you know, if you add more capital to most businesses, you get more supply. Uh, The issue with uh, the oil industry right now is we're not spending enough money. What is unique about uh, the energy industry and specifically oil and gas is it's a depleting business. Wells are under pressure as they produce, the pressure drops and you get less production. So if you aren't drilling more wells and spending more money, you get less production. The issue we've got is the signals to the industry are don't produce more, produce less. Uh, there won't be demand for it. Um, and therefore produce less. The issue is we're consuming more. Demand is increasing. Exactly. So we've, got, we've got supplies going down right. and they're going to continue to go down. Productive okay. capacity next year will be less, but demand will be higher. That, that's a problem. So what, you know, what the government is trying to do, you know, the suggestions of lowering exports, of, of releasing the strategic petroleum reserve, Lowering exports means that supply will be lower. That, that sends prices up, not down. Uh, taking stuff out of inventory, that's a short-term fix. Absolutely. And it seems like a lot of people think if you released all the barrels, maybe you get, I don't know, five bucks of downside in the price of crude per barrel and, and maybe a little bit of relief temporarily at the gas pump. So, you know, what you said, what you're talking about is really interesting here. And it gets into a much, much bigger topic right now. I agree with people who think the energy transition we're undergoing is going to be the story of the decade. I mean, I didn't realize how far we already were in terms of renewables being price competitive and increasing share of the U.S. energy grid. You know, we just finished COP26. We have the Paris Agreement, like all of these things that are basically pushing the world to use less fossil fuels and more renewables. So, you know, when I look at this and go, okay, normally what you're describing, a lot of demand, not enough supply means high oil prices, 100 a barrel, 150, like off to the races. But 
I just wonder, you know, I, I look at my neighbors buying Teslas and, and the marginal demand for gasoline going away. And I wonder, even if we see a near-term near oil spike, if actually we just don't have the same demand and we won't going forward that we once did. So I know it's a big topic, but how do you think this is going to affect the price of oil for the next, you know, 12 to 24 months? Sure. So, you know, what you're bringing up is is really kind of one of the issues in the market. Um, so, you know, the best way to, to look at things and analyze things is actually put numbers behind it. Um, so, you know, what, what I see in the market today is that qualitative things move prices, you know, whether it's, you know, for the electric vehicle stocks or the meme stocks or the market overall, um, the energy business, the price of oil. Uh, there's a lot of things said without quantification. Um, and so if you quantify things, things are pretty different. Um, you know, what, what do I mean by that? Um, you can be very optimistic about the number of electric vehicles sold um, and also be very optimistic about the demand for oil. You know, why is that? Um, when you put the math around it, you know, so we, you know, first let's start with uh, crude oil and crude production. So, you know, we talked about it's a depleting business. So if you think about it, if you went back to 2019 before the pandemic, um, we had about 100 million barrels a day of demand and 100 million barrels a day of supply. Now, there was some excess supply that you could have produced. We'll call that productive capacity. So Saudi Arabia had some extras. There was some extras offline in Iran. Uh, so maybe we could have produced 105. But again, it's a depleting business. And so what happens is people have not been spending enough money. And so that productive capacity is going down. So maybe it was 105 in 2019. You know, each year we're probably losing a percentage or so of productive capacity. So maybe the capacity today is, is lower than that. And it will be lower a year from now, two years from now, et cetera, if we continue on this path of not spending enough in the oil industry. On the other end of the spectrum is demand. So we were growing at about a million and a half barrels a day each year. Why? Populations going up around the world, people are getting wealthier, they consume more energy. And so if you look at the short run, uh, you know, that 100 million barrels in, in 2019, you know, once you remove the effects of COVID, might be 102 or 103 million barrels a day. Even, of, even of, with uh, kind of shaving away demand at the margin, you think it's still, you're, we're still talking about a, like a million barrel increase each year? That's amazing. Yeah, I, I, I do think, you know, that's probably where we are. And so when you kind of walk through that math, it gets very tight. So, you know, you have 102 million barrels of maybe of supply, 102 of demand, plus or minus a few million barrels. Um, it, that's a very, very tight market historically for oil. And so how do you get out of that tight market? You need more, a, either more supply or less demand. And th there is for sure in the long run, uh, you could get more supply, um, but we're not seeing that. And I'll, I'll go into why. Um, could you get less demand? And the issue with what you're talking about with renewables, electric vehicles, cost parity, et cetera, is even if those are true, it will take a very long time. And the math behind that is, is relatively straightforward. So uh, on-road use of oil is 40 to 50% of demand. You know, so call it that 100 million barrels, it's you know, 40 to 50 million barrels a day is, is on-road. So we'll say, you know, to be conservative, we'll say it's half. Now, if you think about a car, it lasts, you know, 15 to 20 years. So call it 17. So each year we replace 6% of 
of of cars. So all auto sales are you know about six percent of the fleet, roughly. Um, so if you think about that, that's six percent. We're not selling a hundred percent of electric vehicles. We're selling you know three or four percent. So even if you said let's triple that and make it ten percent, right? I've we, heard twelve percent maybe could be the mix within a couple of years easily. Yeah. So so if we use those numbers and and that's in a few years. So if we if we multiply those numbers together, fifty percent, you know, times six percent times ten percent, you get 03 percent. So the impact, if we were to you know double or triple the amount of electric vehicles we're selling today, the impact on yearly demand would be 03 percent. You know, it's it's small. Um, and the issue with you know cost parity, et cetera, is you know the returns on capital for alternatives. Um, are, are lower, uh, you know, when you look at companies that can invest anywhere, you know, major oil companies who can invest in an oil project or an alternative energy project, in general, what you'll find is looking at the numbers that the returns on capital are lower. Um, so let's and- pause for a second, because that is exactly where I want to go with this. And I just want to say, by the way, I was joking that this podcast should be called Too Wonky for TV. The numerical exercise that you just ran through is so helpful. Um, you know, it's hard to, to kind of squeeze that into a four minute TV segment. So, <laughs> so that's what I think I, I love being able to do here is, you know, when you put it that way, I go, okay, you're right. Like we can get a lot more EV sales and a lot of more people can buy Teslas and Lucids and Rivians and all the rest of it. And we're still going to have a demand problem. In fact, I've heard people say the single biggest factor for oil prices is going to be the adoption of SUVs in India, because that sort of car buyer is getting wealthy at a very fast rate and they want SUVs and they want gas guzzling SUVs right now. They don't have, you know, EVs. So it's kind of like that, that tiny reduction in global oil demand that we might get from a faster pace of U.S. adoption could easily be offset by what's happening elsewhere. Yes. You know, when you think about it, as people become wealthier, they, they tend to consume a lot more energy. So if you think about it, the, the, the people that do the models, you know, they're, using their best efforts. But, you know, if you look about, if you look at what's going on, um, you know, people are buying RVs, you know, those consume a lot of, of hydrocarbons. Um, if, if you look at electric vehicles, you know, you have to mine a lot of stuff for the batteries. The batteries are very heavy. You're going to be shipping that, you know, on ships, which, which consume hydrocarbons. Um, and then when you think about the way we're living our lives now, you know, you used to go to the store to go get milk or shoes, et cetera. Now it gets delivered to your house. Um, you know, that's packaging. You know, that's a lot more trips to and from. It's much less efficient. It consumes a lot of hydrocarbons. People generally don't take that into account. And so what you've got is a situation where demand is usually stronger than people expect. And, but the bigger issue is supply. The, the people, the, the companies are just not, spending enough. We're spending it as if demand is going to drop fairly right. rapidly. Short so let's time. talk about that for a second, because this is also where um, probably the most focus right now is globally in terms of, okay, we all can kind of understand demand is snapping back and supply is not. And a lot of people want to blame the Biden administration for that. Um, which is obvious. I mean, you know, it does matter if you have kind of a pro or anti-fossil fuel stance in general. Sure, I, I totally understand that. But let's talk about what happened with energy and returns for investors 
in the 2010s. You know, a lot of people don't realize just what a bubble there was because of this miracle, amazing technology of shale, which has helped us lower carbon emissions and made the U.S. for a while the biggest oil producer in the world and, you know, all the rest of it. So the flip side of that was this kind of excitement into the space had a ton of capital, crazy high land prices, you know, stocks were running up all the rest of it, and it didn't end well. You know, the returns were really poor. And when you talk, I mean, you know this better than anybody. Now, a lot of major investors don't want to get back into the space because they say, number one, I've been burned, so I don't really care that prices are up this year. I don't want to get burned again. And number two, most of the time, my shareholder base and the younger generation, they don't want me to invest in any way. So do you think that we need to be talking more about sort of the energy space itself bearing the blame for the lack of interest in the kind of investment that could increase supply right now? And if so, what do we do about that? Sure. You know, it's this is where it gets very interesting. And, and again, it's great. We're, we're not on TV and we have a little more time to go through the math <laughs> around this. So if you look at any commodity market or, you know, really kind of any, any business, you know, why do people invest? They see profitability, you know, so if you see something that's very, very profitable, more money goes into it, too much of a good thing you know, causes it to revert. So, you know, what typically happens in a business where people see a lot of profitability, more capital goes in. So think about it as the exploration and production business, the oil producers, you know, when oil gets good, uh, what do they do? They, they've historically drilled more. So, you know, if you think about a balance sheet, you know, there's an asset side and that's funded by your liabilities and your equity. So your debt and equity finances your assets. So when times are good, you know, producers, what do they want to do? Uh, grow the assets, grow production, and they funded it through the debt markets and the equity markets. Balance sheets have to balance. So, you know, if you want to grow your assets, you have to grow the other side too. And, and what that hap- what happened was you, you ended up with a bust. So, you know, you added too much in the way of assets. And so, like you said, people got burned. Uh, debt holders lost money, equity holders lost money. And so what happened? Uh, money came out of the business. So again, balance sheets have to balance. Uh, the asset side has started shrinking. And so what you've had is a situation where um, lenders are less likely to lend. Equity investors aren't interested. It's become a very small part of the equity market. And so we need more supply, but how are we going to fund that? Um, and so combine that with you know, investors are saying, look, we don't want you to grow. So the, the few investors that are left are saying, look, I'd prefer if you didn't drill more wells. I want the money back. Exactly, because the cash flow could be amazing. If you look at Altria, the former Philip Morris, they returned like, I forget the number, 10 or 15 or 20% a year to investors, total return, because they were paying out such high dividends per share. And you go, all right, fine. I mean, maybe that's the best course for a lot of these companies. It is. And, and here's, here's kind of a, a very simple example. I think even more powerful than the dividends you mentioned is the stocks are so inexpensive. Share repurchase is incredible for these companies. And the example I'll give you is very simple. And I use this with a lot of companies uh, to explain why share repurchase is so powerful. I call it the shoebox example. Kelly, if we were partners in a, in a shoebox and that shoebox had $1,000 in it, uh, it's pretty obvious. We both own 50%. Your share is worth $500, mine's worth $500. Um, if we dividended out, we both have $500. We haven't created or destroyed value. 
But if for some reason I can buy your share for less than what it's worth, so, so I offer you $250 and, and you accept it, and I'm repurchasing your shares for $250. Now I own 100% of the shoebox, but I own something that's worth $750 instead of $500. I've created money through share repurchase. I've, excuse me, I've created value through share repurchase. Share purchase isn't a cure for everything. If, if I do the wrong thing and I say, hey, Kelly, I, I want to buy your share out, I'll give you $750. Uh, you know, now I'm worth, you know, I've got, you know, 100%, but it's, I've lost half the value. So by buying back stock at low prices, you can create value for the, for the remaining shareholders. It's incredibly powerful. And so when investors say, oh, well, there are invested people divesting out of, out of these companies, there's just not a lot of interest. That's actually great, you know, because these companies are aggressively buying back stock. And when you put the numbers behind it, you know, look, the last five years, as you mentioned, has been pretty terrible for oil prices. You know, they averaged about $55 a barrel. You're getting a 10% free cash flow yield on these companies if oil prices were 55, which is, you know, $20 or more below where they are today. Wow. If, if you get 65, which is the average of the last 10 years, you're getting kind of 15 to 20% free cash flow yields. You know, if we keep these commodity prices or they go higher, it's even bigger. So, you know, what does that mean? You know, theoretically, we have these companies that we own that are saying, look, I'm just going to buy back my stock. Yeah. Um, and as they do that, if you think about a 20% free cash flow yield, in five years, you've bought every single share back. There's, exactly. There's theoretically impossible. So here's... I think an important way to now flip this on its head, which we're already starting to see in the political rhetoric, you know, from the investor point of view, it's a win-win because it means you get better shareholder returns and you get higher oil prices, which then create this sort of virtuous cycle of higher oil prices and and better financial returns. But that's a lose-lose from the political point of view because they go, well, then we end up with higher prices at the pump. And now from a political point of view, you can go after these companies by saying, how dare you return all this cash instead of investing in more production that would lower the oil price and make it better for Americans. We're already seeing the worm turn in this way. What are the companies going to do here? Yeah, I, I think, you know, I, I think what they've just got to continue to do is, is, is buy back their inexpensive stocks. I, it's, look, the government doesn't produce oil. They, they actually need these companies to invest more. The, the problem is they're on one hand saying produce more oil and on the other hand saying produce less oil. If you look at the regulations or the, you know, look, if, you, if you're not going to approve pipelines, how are you going to get the, the right. product to market? Um, you're asking, you know, we produce more oil than any other country in the world, um, but yet we're asking OPEC to produce it. If, if you think about the environment, it's worse to import oil than it is to produce it here at home. Um, it, it, you know, if we're talking about, you know, on one hand, we want to ban exports, you know, that gives people less incentive to, to produce more. So you're just creating more and more uncertainty. I think that, you know, when you look at it, what can the government do? It, it, it doesn't seem like they can be effective at doing much other than make the problem worse. Uh, you know, th- what they're probably not going to do is you know, incentivize people to produce more. And so it's counterintuitive with commodities, but if the less you have being invested, the better it is. Right. Um, the profitability and the better it is for investors. Unfortunately for society, it's, it's a bad thing. You know, it's, it's inflationary. Um, 
And, and there really is no short-term solution to this. And you know, what's interesting is I've been doing this for 25 years. I've never seen a situation like this before. Hmm. Because I also wonder, and now I'll ask you one more sort of big picture question. I actually want to talk about some of your picks in this space as well, because there's some names we don't talk about every day. But, you know, so from the big picture point of view, my husband and I have even had this conversation. You know, I drive a minivan because <laughs> we have three small kids and it's a real gas guzzler. And I drive it to work and back every day. And I'm spending, you know, 50 bucks every week to fill up the gas tank. And I'm thinking to myself, should I just, you know, get a little EV, charge it every night, you know, some cheapo thing, I don't know, like a leaf or a bolt or something, drive that to work and back and be way better off. So is the, at some point, if the world is transitioning away from gasoline, is the high oil price environment you're describing, and I don't know if it lasts for six months or 12 months or 18 months or, or 24, but will that itself again hasten its own decline from a demand point of view? Maybe that is the solution here. If, if supply can't really be solved, then maybe it is demand destruction because households will start to go, you know what, especially if the big plan passes with the 12 grand uh, rebates, you know, maybe, maybe that pushes more people away from gasoline demand. It, you know, it, look, it probably does. As you know, I we're invested in energy stocks. You know, I live in California. Uh, you know, we have solar on our roof, and and my wife has a Tesla. Um, you know, <laughs> is and, that allowed for you? <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the crazy thing is, you know, you know, is that really good for the environment? It's it's actually kind of debatable. Um, but you know, when you think about what you're talking about, you have to remember also that, you know you are going to be consuming energy. You know, you know, electricity is not energy. It's, it's being produced somewhere else. You, you might be burning, you know, in, in areas of the country, that electricity might be coming from coal or natural gas. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are, there is something happening or, you know, the solar panel is, you know, you've got hydrocarbons, et cetera. It's being shipped. You know, there, there is use of hydrocarbons. So the problem with, um, all of these solutions is that in general, what you go back to is you, you're probably going to be consuming a lot of hydrocarbons in the process. Especially and there, the really nation, is yeah. no, there is really no easy fix. The real answer is consume less. Um, unfortunately, that's not what societies historically do. You sound like uh, Jimmy Carter now. Yeah, it's, it's, that's, you know, that's the answer, but it's, it's probably the least likely thing to happen. But it it can happen through high prices. You know, this is one thing I really worry about as we head into winter. If if you, again, go back to the cigarette example, if you want people to smoke less, you raise the price of cigarettes and no one's upset about that. But if, if, if the markets are pushing us to consume less energy, it's by raising the price to ensure demand destruction and high income households, they don't use less. It's the low-income households literally have no choice. So they either have to use less or they just pay those bills and it has to come out from somewhere else. So this goes back to the carbon tax thing we don't have to get into right now. But one thing I thought was very fair about structuring a carbon tax or cap and trade, whatever you want to call it, is that the proceeds would be paid out to households on the lower uh, income side of things to help them afford the resulting higher energy bills. Now we have a situation where there's no rebates, you know, there's, it's a horribly regressive. There's so much other inflation going on that's already bad for low-income households. And now we're heading into a winter where they're going to face higher nat gas heating bills, you know, higher prices at the pump. And there's no talk about direct relief for those households. And it, it feels very unfair and unfortunate to me. And I, 
I wish people would talk about that problem because it feels like it's not going away. It's only going to get worse. And so why not have the Biden administration stand up and say, you know, forget about trying to put a complicated tax or cap and trade system in place, but we are going to give, you know, energy relief directly to households. Yeah. So again, going, going, the issue is that high prices lead to less demand. The problem is politicians generally don't want high prices because it, it, it is inflationary. Uh, voters tend to not like it. So then if you subsidize uh, to offset that, then people will consume, you know, so it, it, there right, are no exactly. easy situations. There are no easy solutions. The real problem is that, you know, in any of these scenarios, um, depletion runs faster than likely demand declines. And so you can still have, you know, very high prices, very profitable prices for companies and, you know, a declining in demand. But it, again, it's very hard to get that demand to decline. You know, if you look at the U.S., which is a very mature area, um, it's grown at 1% over the decade from, you know, ending in 2019. It, it was still growing, even though we're mature, even though we've added fuel efficiency, et cetera, et cetera. People like to consume energy. The wealthier you get, the more you consume. That, that's the problem. Sure. So let me turn and, and talk about a couple of the names here that I know if, I, I believe are still in your portfolio. Um, you can feel free to talk about others if you want, but all three of these that I have in mind are names that don't typically come up. And I would just be curious why you like them. Oasis Petroleum, Berry Corporation, Cosmos Energy. Can you just kind of get into this a little bit as whether, you know, you love them, like them, or if they're just kind of examples of your process and how you marry the macro kind of crude and oil demand supply outlook with, okay, well, what does that mean for which individual stocks people need to be holding for the next year or so? Sure. So, it, you know, when you go through these companies, they all have some unique attributes, but in general, what you'll find is that they're generating a lot of free cash flow. Um, they're very shareholder friendly. And that combination is, is good. Shareholder friendly, meaning they're buying back stocks. So if you, you know, so let's start with Cosmos. So Cosmos is an offshore oil producer. Uh, the man management team is very, very good with reinvesting capital. So they generate cash and they have opportunities to drill or to acquire. Um, they did a fantastic deal recently where, the, where they bought some assets uh, from Occidental Petroleum who needed to sell assets. They bought them for a few hundred million dollars and they're probably worth a billion dollars. Wow. Um, so relatively small market cap, um, you know, a billion and a half or so. So you've got this business, which is, you know, probably a 25% free cash flow yield. So generating a lot of cash in relationship to its market cap or share price. What's also very, very interesting is they have a very large asset, which is very valuable. It's an LNG asset offshore West Africa, where they partner with BP, there's no value for that in their share price. And it's probably worth the equivalent of their share price. So wow. for free, you're, you're getting you know, the share price. And so when you think about that combination, you've got a lot of free cash flow being generated and an asset offshore West Africa that isn't producing anything that, mark, that the market isn't giving them credit for. That's a very powerful combination. And Cosmos is ticker KOS, just so people are following along. I mean, I, as you're describing this, I'm wondering if one of the advantages of the kind of disinterest in fossil fuels is that people who know this stuff like you 
have more of an edge and can generate more alpha than usual. I mean, sure, Exxon and Chevron, I'm going to ask you about that in a second. They're widely covered, widely followed with great interest. But I have to imagine that it's kind of shriveling up for a, a lot of the rest of the names. Yes. And, and this is a, a bigger issue with, with the market is that there are few real active managers. As, as you know, when, when we talk to companies, you know, we see all these energy companies and also a variety of other companies. You know, what's the one thing that's consistent about what energy management teams will tell you is when we go see investors, they're, they're either not interested or B, they, they don't understand it. They, they don't understand how the businesses work, et cetera. They, they come with a lot of preconceived notions, which, which aren't accurate. Um, and, and that's pretty true for the market as a whole. If you, if you look at the trading of stocks, you know, a lot of the volume in, in any particular stock is an ETF, uh, artificial intelligence, quantitative, you know, where, where price and the value and the earnings power is not factored into the equation. So it is strange. It's a strange world. When you think about it, Kelly, if you were to take a job, you would want to know, okay, what does it pay? What's the salary? What does this earn? Um, when people are investing today, the vast majority or well over half, maybe it's as much as you know, 80% or more, don't care about what a company earns or what it's worth. Uh, <laughs> it's it's You're taking a job without knowing what it pays. And, and you might find out that it doesn't pay anything. Um, you know, so when we see it's wild, you know, when we see a lot of these companies, you know, whether it's you know, take the electric vehicles where, you know, they're not earning any money. When you look at the valuations, you know, the electric they vehicle, have revenue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's wild. Like, you know, the entire, you know, going back to the math we can do on this podcast, you know, the electric vehicle space, you know, one company, which, which I'm not going to mention who it is, but I think people can figure it out. Um, you know, it's over a trillion dollar market cap. If you look at the entire earnings from the global auto industry in a good year, it's about $100 billion. So if you're trading at 10 times earnings as if you were selling every single car in the world, that's pretty expensive. And, you know, so then the whole industry is trading at, you know, maybe 20 or 25 times. Um, so I'm, whole- I'm grinning here. I'm going to just jump in and give you the, the sort of contrarian take on this. Is it possible that a company like Tesla, because it could offer its autonomous, you know, software platforms for all cars, which Elon Musk has said he's totally interested in doing, that they're actually expanding both the size and the profitability of what we typically think of as the car space. So yes, they are making and selling a bunch of cars, but are a lot of other automakers also paying them to run their software, for instance? You know, are they growing the, how lucrative the industry can be just look at what people think or hope they could do with something like fleets of robo taxis. I mean, now you're absorbing a lot of other categories into autos, you know? Sure. So, so I'll just talk, you know, generally, you know, <laughs> I, I, I'm not going to talk specifically about that company because I, I run into some issues, but if, if you think about, you know, just industries in general, um, you, there, it is so easy to raise capital in certain areas, take EV. So if you, if you, Put a couple of billion dollars into a, any company, and we've we've seen some come public recently. You know, if you start with two or three or four billion, and the market values it at a hundred billion, um, more people are going to do that. You're, it's relatively simple to raise money for this, um, and people are chasing it. As you get all of this capital, um, you are going to get a lot of competition. So, when you look at it in totality, there's a lot of capital um, chasing something. 
you generally will see profitability will go down. Um, when I've looked at some of these models for some of the companies you're talking about, one of the issues is, is that the assumptions are that it becomes extraordinarily profitable. And when you look at some of the models, you know, people are paying more for the software than the car um, mm -hmm. in the future. And could I just get the car? The car price in the model is going down with no software. It might be cheaper just to hire a driver. <laughs> That's when you go through some of this math, it doesn't make sense. Um, and so look, could you absorb more industries? Yes, but those industries are going to compete against you. Um, so there's just a lot of capital chasing the same thing. You have to believe that A, it's very large, B, that the profitability sustains competition, that there's some sort of competitive advantage, and that you can take massive amounts of share. The other issue you've got working against you is time. You know, the, if you're trading at 10 times the profitability of the entire industry, but you don't have that profitability today, as we started the podcast with, you know, the market share of EVs is three or 4%. We're talking about a hundred percent. The math is very, very hard to overcome. Um, so, you know, it's, it, it's a great perspective. No, I, I absolutely love it. So let me then bring it back to Barry, for instance, Oasis. Um, you know, I, Again, I'd like to hear if there's a couple of company-specific things going on here or if they're just emblematic of the way you see the energy space unfolding for the next couple of years. Yeah, so I, I think, you know, one of the interesting things, the comments I had when I was starting out in 25 or so years ago was uh, an oil tanker CEO said, you know, Stan, one of the things I can't change is, is the price I pay for an asset. If I buy something inexpensively, there's very little I can do wrong. If I overpay for it, there's almost nothing I can do right. And so those inexpensive opportunities like the barriers of this world, like the Oasis, you know, wh why do we think these are inexpensive and, and what can go right? Um, one, they're generating a lot of cash. Even if prices drop a lot, they're, they're going to be generating a lot of cash. They're going to be returning it to shareholders, which is very valuable. Um, you know, as we mentioned, that share repurchase example. But then the third thing is consolidation. When you, when you look at this industry, you know, particularly in the United States, and you go to places like the Bakken in North Carolina, North, excuse me, North Dakota, um, when you look at the Permian or the Eagleford, um, the DJ Basin in Colorado, there are a lot of companies doing the same thing. So there's 20, 30, 40 companies doing the same thing this industry will consolidate. And as you take, you consolidate, you become more efficient, you take costs out. So, you know, we see these companies and they can acquire, not only can they buy back their stock, but they can acquire. And as they acquire other companies, they're becoming more efficient, the profitability increases. And so again, you get that for free, similar to Cosmos, you're getting some LNG assets for free, you know, with these companies as they acquire, um, they're going to be creating a lot more value that investors aren't giving them credit for. And so what you'll see is a more efficient industry where they can retain that profitability and again, return it to shareholders and that, that cycle yeah. becomes very, very valuable. So can I close by asking you two more questions? One is I'd love to know what you would do with the oil majors, Exxon in particular, because it is the most familiar household name. So it's such a target, look at engine number one, all the rest of it. So that's the first question. And then I, before you go, I want you to just kind of leave us with your thought on the markets overall these days. You've kind of hinted at it with the EV space, but maybe we could start with what happens to Exxon and Chevron from here? 
Sure. So just in general, uh, integrated oil companies, I'll, I'll just say broadly, um, you know, what, if, if I was the CEO was a question, somebody asked me, what would I do? The, the, the difficulty that those, those companies have is that a, they're in the downstream part of the business, refining and marketing. That, that tends to be a more difficult business. Why? Because it doesn't deplete. You know, refineries stay around for a while. If eventually you have declines in hydrocarbons, um, you know, that can be a very tough business. Um, so that, that's one issue. The second thing is they, they are, their investors want them to transition towards, uh, you know, more alternatives. That's, again, somewhat lower returns. Um, you know, that's very good for the oil market. You know, you're again, you're not adding a lot of supply. Um, so in general, um, we don't we don't own either of those at, at Hotchkiss and Wiley. But um, I would say you, the better opportunities in energy are, you know, in the smaller companies, pure exploration and production mm. where you're generating a lot of free cash and getting a lot of free options. So um, those are interesting. They'll probably be good investments. But I think that there are better investments in energy is probably the easy way to do it. Um, the markets in general. Um, yeah, you know, we, like I'd, I'd be curious, how do you view valuation, but also kind of implicit in that is what do you think happens with inflation and the Fed and why are bond yields still so low and why are real rates still so negative? And that could be a whole other podcast, but um, definitely love to know what your overall thoughts are here. Sure. So again, it, you know, and, and it, it, we could spend a, a whole podcast on it, but if you think about some of the things we've talked about um, and you think about markets, markets serve two purposes. They're where investors earn a return for their investment. And it's also where companies raise capital and it needs to be an efficient mechanism. So what we're seeing today is a dislocation between the fundamentals and, and that creates distortions in markets. The problem that we have uh, today is, is when you look at um, the market today, you see some crazy valuations. So uh, what's a good example? If, if you saw a bond, you know, bonds are always easy, much easier to understand. If you saw a bond that, that was, had a 5% yield for 10 years, um, it's $1,000, you know, okay, you're going to get a 5% return. You're going to get $500 over the life of it in interest and $1,000 at the end. You would say, okay, I understand that. Now, if you started seeing people paying $2,000 for that bond, you'd say, well, that's crazy. No one would do that. Um, you're going to invest $2,000. You're only going to get $1,500 back. You're going to lose money. Um, and yet what you see is people will say, it's it, well, it went from 1000 to 2000 It's going to go to 3000 And that's what we're seeing in the market where you can do the math and say, this is ridiculous. Yeah. It's not worth this. Um, that is what happened in 1999, the dot-com bubble. Um, where do and you so, see this in the market? Where do you think things are most egregious? I, I think where you're seeing it is, you know, where where do we not need capital, but the market is telling you we need a lot of capital? You know, mm -hmm. we've, we've talked about some of the EV space. Um, I think that there's a lot of euphoria there. Meme stocks, um, you know, we probably don't need more movie theaters uh, or video retailers, but the market is telling you we're desperate for them. Um, I think a lot of growth companies that are losing money, you know, that's where you're getting a lot of the risk. And so that's the kind of, I would say there's three risks. That's the 1999 tech risk of overvaluation bubble. You're allocating capital to the wrong place. And the second risk, which you, you touched on, I would say, 
is the 1979 type risk, which is the inflation. So we're talking about, you know, in the, in the everyday oh, uh, bottlenecks, et cetera. Is that a red herring for, you know, we just put too much in the money supply. We've grown it too fast. We're, we're going to get inflation. Right. Like that's, that's the problem. And as you mentioned, you know, there's a, you know, a 20 plus trillion dollar U.S. government market, which looks very overvalued and is very, very dangerous. Um, you know, remember on a 30 year bond, if the yield goes from two to 3%, you lose 20%. You know, that's, that's a problem. So that's the 1979 type risk. And then the third risk I would say is the, the 1987 risk, which is, you know, what happened in 1987 was we saw a stock market crash. And right. the reason for that was portfolio insurance, et cetera. You know, we do have a lot of those risks where it's a momentum market. Um, people believe that they can get out before, you know, we realize that that, that it's going to come. Um, there's a lot of of insurance people think that they have and that things can only go up. Um, if you've got this market where the majority of investors aren't people or, or active managers or people that understand the fundamentals, that can be very dangerous. So the real risks, I think, in the market is, you know, the 1999 type risk of overvaluation, the 1979 risk of inflation, and the 1987 risk of just a really bad market structure. You just really hope that those three don't come together. No, that's yeah. that's the end of Ghostbusters. Right. <laughs> well, I would say, Stan, that after speaking to you, I'm now feeling a little bit more bullish on the oil price, which again maybe is a bad thing from every other point of view, <laughs> except being an energy investor. And I feel like it's going to be a lot more difficult problem to solve than you know than politicians are ready for. And we know sometimes that makes them resort to really creative solutions. So, um, you know, I'm worried about the winter. I'm worried about energy prices. And uh, maybe I'll go back to a joke I made a while ago, which is that, you know, every pension fund and whatever in America should maybe own these energy assets as a hedge, um, you know, reap the returns and, uh, and redistribute the proceeds, do whatever you want, help pay pensions with them. But, um, you know, but that, that this is going to be a really difficult time. So thank you so much for explaining both energy and, and where you see the markets today. Oh, it was great to be here. Thank you very much. All right. Stan Major has been my guest in this conversation. Thanks so much, everybody, for listening. Be sure to follow our podcast and tune in to catch our show weekdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, only on CNBC. See you then. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.